Welcome to the Liberated Leader Podcast. I'm your hostess, B. Chan. Together, we'll connect with leaders in the psychedelic space and explore the creations they birthed into this world, all in hopes to bring the psychedelic renaissance into the 21st century and spread the message of inner healing. Because when we heal ourselves, we heal the world. So let's get liberated. Okay. Hi, so today we have Peter Gulka with us. He began his journey of healing with plant medicines in 2017 after 20 plus years of anxiety, depression, and OCD symptoms. So when medication no longer worked, Peter sought relief elsewhere. And through deep personal experiences, Peter was empowered to continue the healing work through EMDR psychotherapy and a variety of other modalities. As the founder of Waves Pure Coaching, Peter supports those seeking to prepare for and integrate from a psychedelic experience and is proud to work alongside mental health professionals collaboratively. He's also one of the producers of the Mormons on Mushrooms podcast, working closely with the Mormon and ex-Mormon communities in which he was raised. Welcome to the podcast, Peter. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be talking to you today. Yay. Um, so jumping right into it, like, where do you think the anxiety, depression, and OCD came from? Ooh, that is, that is a fun story to tell. When I was 15, I was first diagnosed. And when that happened, this was about four, this was early nineties, a little bit of time after uh, Prozac was first introduced in the U S and was available in Canada. And at the time it was considered almost a miracle drug in, in the way that it attacked depression and anxiety symptoms. And so when it was prescribed to me, it was framed almost like diabetes of the brain. So if you have diabetes, you have an inability to produce insulin. So here is the insulin shot that you're going to need to compensate for that fact. And if you have type one diabetes, you're going to be on that for the rest of your life. That's just the way it is. And it was framed that way, that this is just the way your brain grew. This is a chemical imbalance in your brain, and it's just the way things are. So here's the pill that you're going to take for the rest of your life to manage these symptoms. And in my experience, there was no reason to doubt that diagnosis. Um, it came out later that the symptoms I was experiencing were a result of trauma more than anything, unprocessed and ongoing trauma uh, from the family that I was raised in, from the religious experience that I had, uh, from a lot of different circumstances, but definitely addressable mm -hmm. and not quite the thing that I was told initially and what led to. 20 years of medication use. Totally. Yeah. Um, can you explain what OCD is? OCD is obsessive compulsive disorder. And so it, it manifests in different levels of severity. And some people who are properly diagnosed with OCD, it could almost be considered a, a biochemical brain abnormality. It's not a trauma response necessarily, but I had OCD symptoms in that I had, and sometimes still have an obsessive need to check things check Facebook, check email, check messages. And if I don't, something bad will happen. And so the stereotype that you'll often hear about is people who compulsively clean or they flip the light switch 10 times because if they don't, something bad will happen. And that's how it manifested in me. I, had, I was a checker. Gotcha. That's interesting. Well, I feel like in our day and age, you know, with, with social media and the instant gratification of mobile phones and whatnot, we're all kind of checkers. So how can you tell if you're, you're like, you have OCD checking or, or if you have like normal amount of checking? Sure. Well, I can only speak to my own experience. I'm not a, I'm not able to diagnose, but in general, 
uh, it's similar kind of the way how addiction is framed. If the thing that you're doing is, is annoying, but is not generally interfering with your day-to-day -day life, it's probably not at the clinical diagnosis stage. Um, but if it's like, oh, I'm unable to hold a job, my family is falling apart, I can't leave the house, those kind of things, mm -hmm. and a sincere, like real desire to try and not have that as part of one's life, but can't stop, that's where it gets kind of problematic. And so there is a bit of overlap when we talk about OCD symptoms, as opposed to OCD, there is a lot of overlap with the premise behind addiction. Interesting. And so you said it came from trauma. Um, could you tell us a bit more about what kind of trauma you experienced? Mm -hmm. So when I was four, my parents divorced. And this is only something I realized relatively recently in the last year of therapy, that that was the beginning of a number of traumatic experiences um, through nobody's fault, really. People who were trying to do the best with what they could, but nevertheless, these traumatic experiences happen. So my, my dad moves away to the other side of the planet. Uh, my mom is now single with my younger brother and sister in you know the 80s, where mental health and supports for women were not tremendously good. So she had to work all the time to support us. Um, and single moms get stressed. And it was an unpleasant situation to grow up in when my oh my normal childhood behavior uh, became a way for her to vent. And it's a very complex, it's, it's complex for me to describe this because A, she did the best she could with what she was equipped with. And it was really problematic for me. Both of those things can be true at the same time. And that's really, really hard. Where the, tr where the most pronounced trauma came in was when I was 10, uh, she joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which most people know as Mormons. And it was presented to her as a very family-friendly, very welcoming, very community-oriented religion, which is not just a show up on Sunday kind of thing. It is a lifestyle. It is your whole social circle. It is your whole construct of reality. And that's the environment in which I was raised. And, and the church very much, especially at the time, really was promoting the nuclear family, mom, dad, and kids as the only viable way to get to heaven. And so here I was with a single mom, and we were unable to have the kind of life that was held up. And that started a long path of, do I really believe this? Well, I don't, but I kind of have to because I'm surrounded by this all the time and not participating is not an option. And so the checking really came out of that, this idea that I couldn't show who I really was or who I really thought because it didn't fit with the narrative in which I was being raised. And if I didn't fit in with the narrative, bad things would happen. So there was a constant need to check and reinforce the mask that I was wearing, mm -hmm. though I never would have been able to put this together. It was just happening on autopilot. And that stress or that cognitive dissonance between I don't really buy into this but I'm being told this is the one true path to happiness never stopped. And that stress and anxiety of those two really diametrically opposed beliefs followed me for decades. And that was where my symptoms came from. And so traumatic experiences specifically would be, yeah, my dad, my parents divorcing um, powerful instances where my expression of my own sexuality as a teenager was, was really slapped down as being immoral and wrong and evil, which is, you know, normal teenage exploration, things like that, those stuck with me. Mm -hmm. When you're in part, when you're in an organization 
that says, uh, you know, masturbation is evil. And like, how do you, how do you develop a healthy sexual identity with that? When you're told that you have to be married in order to get to heaven and your mom isn't, how do you deal with that? So traumas in instances of very severe experiences, yes, but also these little, slight, slow, ongoing, low level traumas happened all the time. So I was diagnosed with PTSD a year and a bit ago because of this, but also complex PTSD, which is not the, the combat soldier who goes to war and comes back and relives their experience. Complex PTSD is a number of sustained low-level traumas that kind of blend together. No one of them is really stand out, but in aggregate, debilitating. That's super interesting. I haven't heard of complex PTSD before. It's definitely uh, the first one that you explained where, you know, the, the military uh, person comes back home and he experiences his, his war scenes again. That's like the only, um, I guess that's like the widely socially accepted concept of PC, PTSD, but there's definitely more. And thank you for sharing that. I didn't know that before. Um, I had a question about, so in the Mormon community, if going to heaven means having that nuclear family, the mom, dad, and kids, and your mom didn't, you know, you only had the mom, how did you or your mom, ex like, how was the experience in the Mormon community knowing that she was a single mom? Like, were they that welcoming or were, were there pressures to, I don't know, get married again or? My experience in the Mormon religion was there's it's like a mile wide and an inch deep there's a very strong need to present oneself as being very happy and very fulfilled and so the outward facing side was we are surrounded by people who love and care for us but just underneath that there was this undercurrent of oh isn't that sad isn't that sad for them but all the time you, you know of growing up things like uh, father-son camp could could go someone would take pity on me and invite me but I could never have that any of those father-son things couldn't couldn't have that affected my mom too because she would know that something about the situation that she was now responsible for was causing me and my brother to not be able to experience things like that and so that again starts to just subtly reinforce this sense of you don't belong who you really are doesn't fit here, but you still got to wear the mask because it's the environment that you're in day to day. Now that is not, I, I really have a hard time, you know, explaining to people who aren't necessarily familiar with the church, what the Mormon experience is, because that was mine. And that's not everybody's. It took a long time for me to get there because I had a lot of anger towards the structures of the church that I was raised in. But to say that those things happened and people were doing the best with what they knew has become very important to me to communicate to people that none of this was malicious, the stuff that happened to me. It just kind of happened. Got it. Yeah. I, I definitely grew up with a totally uh, the opposite end of the spectrum where um, we were, we're non-religious. Uh, we're more, I guess, spiritual, if I have to say. And uh, my mom just brought me to like different places of worship. So like Christian summer vacation Bible school to like Catholic churches, to Buddhist temples and Sikh temples and stuff like that. So um, yeah, I, I don't know how to put myself in somebody's shoes who did grow up in a really religious setting. Yeah. Um, but what would you say, like, you, you mentioned it a little bit, but 
if you can talk in depth about that a bit more, like what were the repercussions or like the impact of growing up in a community like that? Like what were the, the conditionings and like the limiting beliefs that you realized or became aware of later on? A lot of it had to do with just the immersion in it. Like this is literally your social circle or was my social circle. This was, you know, there are volunteer positions that everybody takes on one or more volunteer positions in the church, whether it's teaching or, you know, music or anything like that, cleaning the building. It's just one's whole life. And so in it, it became so familiar that I didn't really think much of this stuff and how much it was affecting me until I left. And so when one leaves, it is not an active or overt shunning, but for me, the community just disappeared. When that is the entirety of one's social circle, when that is the way in which one defines their existence and their identity, and that's all of a sudden gone, that's really, really disruptive. And so the, the before and the after are very starkly different. And in the middle, the part that I think was the most stressful was trying to make it work, trying to stay in, knowing that I didn't really believe the things that I was you know, supposed to believe, but being too scared to do anything about it set a lot of patterns into motion or reinforced a lot of patterns of, if I show who I really am, something bad is gonna happen. And effectively it did. When I came out and said, I don't believe in this, I can't be a part of this, it's, it's affecting me too badly the world exploded. And it was a very, very hard process filled with a lot of anger. And in hindsight, that anger led to me probably doing the most damage to those relationships because of where I was, who would want to be around somebody who's angry all the time, not me. But I had no outlet or no way to understand what I was experiencing. And so my world just imploded and collapsed in on itself. And that had collateral damage on, you know, my mom and my siblings and friends and, and damaged or, or destroyed a lot of relationships in that flailing around trying to figure out, well, what now? Mm -hmm. and it was just a mess. Yeah, I can only imagine. Um, what was the time span there? Like, how long were you part of the community for? And then what, how long was that middle part of you trying to make it work? And then how long have you uh, left since? So I was 10 when my mom joined the church and we were, you know, act, we say active in the church. I was a, you know, believing, participating member as much as I did believe or put on the, the image that I believed really up until my mid thirties, um, where things didn't, they were not clicking. They had always not clicked, but they were doing so in a way that I couldn't ignore anymore, that now I had kids and I was now participating in the things with them that I had participated in. And now I'm seeing it from this different perspective and I'm going, ah, I can't, I don't think I can do this anymore, but not knowing what else to do. And so that period of trying to figure things out was probably two or three years. Um, and I ended up not attending at all in 2015. Wow. And then resigned my membership formally in early 2016. So six, six -ish years now. Yeah. Yeah. What were some of the things that didn't click? Um, there's this idea called the plan of happiness, where there's this very linear checklist like model for who we are, why we're here, where we came from, or sorry, where we came from, why we're here, where we're going after we die. Mm -hmm. And 
in this particular life, there's a checklist of things that you need to do in order to essentially graduate to the highest degree of heaven. You have to, you know, attend your church meetings and pay tithing a certain amount of money to the church, and you have to attend the temple and go and participate in specific ceremonies, and you have to get married in a specific way, and you have to have kids, and you have to live your life in a very, very narrow channel that is predefined for you, and that dictates sexual orientation, it dictates uh, opinions on relationship status, it dictates all these things that one must adhere to in order to qualify for not going to hell, essentially. And more and more, I was realizing this sense of, I'm being told what to believe, but I don't, I don't actually believe it. But the language is such that this is the expectation. And well, of course, you believe this you wouldn't be a member of the church if you didn't. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is the requirement. So why would you do anything else? And it was so unconscious that I never would have described it that way at the time, but that narrow checklist does not allow for um, critical thinking. It doesn't allow for individuation. It doesn't allow for anything other than the prescribed narrative, which was essentially to defer my sense of identity to the organization and the structure itself to tell me who I was instead of having the opportunity to figure that out for myself. Things like scriptures that would say the natural man is an enemy to God and has been from the beginning were essentially used to say your intuition is Satan. Mm. So don't trust yourself. Don't trust your own feelings. Listen to what your leaders are saying because they have more authority than you do in interpreting what the right way is to live. And so more and more of the things that were dictates down of the right way to live just didn't work for me. And it came to a head. The thing that finally tipped the scale for me was um, in November of 2015, this is affectionately known as the November policy. Uh, there was a decree made that the children of same sex couples could no longer be baptized. But the church is not really well known as a as an LGBT friendly organization, but this kind of sealed the deal. And it was just a bridge too far for me because it started a mass of suicides for a couple of years until that policy was rescinded. People who were like, well, that's it. I, I have to disavow a huge piece of who I am and I can't live like this. And so a rash of particularly youth suicides and young people who saw no path forward in their life where they couldn't be married in heterosexual relationships. Their kids couldn't be baptized in the church. There was no place for them. And so death was preferable. Right. And I couldn't, I had a, I had a kid who at that time had come out and I just couldn't do it. Mm. Has that policy been rescinded since? It was rescinded in couple of years after that yeah but the by then the damage had already been done and in the, the anniversary of that policy just passed and it's been six years since that happened and and it's still remembered by groups like um the mama dragons which is a group of lds moms who's uh typically whose kids have come out who banded together to try and support lgbt youth during this rash of suicides and so they will bring this up just to say, yeah, this was a thing. And they never apologized for it. They never said it was wrong. They just quietly made it go away. Mm. Wow. I didn't know any of that stuff happened. <laughs> this is a history lesson for me right now. It's, that's crazy. Wow. So would you say that's more um, like, I don't want to say all religion, but the, the experience... Um, from what I hear, uh, your identity and your authority has been given away 
to the church, to some external factor. And that was a conflict with your personal values. Yeah, that's a good way of saying it. Mm -hmm. But it happened at such a young age that that identity didn't even have an opportunity to form. And so there was no real, there was no conscious decision to do it. So I think people who join the church as, as converts later in life um, have a much different experience because they have some sense of doing it with, I guess, with consent. That's interesting. So after you left, um, you were saying that your whole entire social circle was there. And then once you're out, it kind of disappeared overnight. How has that gone on since then? The people that I grew up with, both in the church and out of the church, I don't really have any contact with. And I think that's pretty typical of people who grow up in small towns and move away. Um, some of them I've, I've, that I knew later in life, but before I had left, I still have relationships with, um, but it became pretty apparent who I had a relationship simply with, simply because I went to church with them. And, but there are people where that was not the basis for the relationship where those, those friendships were rekindled or, or had endured while I was busy flailing about being angry at everything and has since calmed down. Uh, and that has provided space for those relationships to rebuild or reform or shift into something where the, the religious affiliations, either them still being Mormon or me not being doesn't matter anymore, which is kind of cool, actually. Yeah. Is it, is that encouraged for um, someone who's active in the Mormon community to be, to have friends outside? Of it, it wasn't when I grew up. Um, it's, it, those are, I hesitate with these kind of questions because there's a lot of things that are not overtly said, like over the pulpit, but they're just in the zeitgeist mm. in a way that like everybody knows it, but nobody says it. And it's hard to pinpoint where it actually comes from. Mm. So yes and no, no, that was never expressly told, but it was strongly, strongly implied over and over and over again, that unless you're friendshiping somebody for the purpose of joining the church, it's probably best to be friends with people who are members of the church. And again, my personal experience was that, but I've heard stories of people who had the complete opposite experience and they were as devout as I was. It became very community specific, even though the church kind of predicates itself on being the same everywhere, no matter where you go, there are very much situational experiences based on the place in which someone grows in that particular group of people that would be in your congregation. So my experience would be arguably more sort of fundamentalist than maybe uh, a large city, mm -hmm. someone from a large city would have experienced or a more liberal city. Where, where did you grow up? I grew up in a small town uh, east of Edmonton in Alberta that had about 5,000 people in it growing oh. up. So it was a very, very small town and a very small congregation, but there was a very large youth component when I was growing up. And so there was, I don't know, 20 youth at any one time. And so that was plenty of a social circle for all of us. Yeah. Sounds like it. Um, you mentioned the topic of anger mm -hmm. for, uh, for a couple of years. Um, how did you cope with that? How did you handle that? badly. Um, in the grief cycle, anger is a, is a stage of the grief cycle. But what happened to me was I got stuck there. Anger at, anger at the life that I felt had been stolen from me. Anger at my mom for 
subjecting me to what at the time I was referring to as a cult anger at choices that were never presented to me in a way that I could give informed consent, really just being so upset at the years that were stolen and the experiences that were stolen from my life, or I perceived to have stolen from my life. Because one of the things that happens along the way is like, I was married at 19, we were having kids by 24 and we had four kids. So all those experiences that people would typically have in their teens and twenties before they start that process, I never got to have. So it was very isolating in trying to build a new peer group when I, I have a bunch of kids at home and I'm exhausted all the time and am mad because I had a, been struggling with this expectation of this is how my life should have gone. Here's how it did go. And the difference between those two is where that anger came from and not really having a lot of good mental health treatment that I was participating in at the time, still dealing with all these symptoms that I was medicated for for so long, all of that kind of happening at the same time was just this burst of unfelt emotion that came out as anger. Yeah. As it probably would for most people, <laughs> that's mm -hmm. a lot to take on for sure. Wow. Did, did your spouse and your kids leave the community with you? Uh, their, their status is what I would call complicated. A couple of them who are older have decided not to go back anymore. Um, but it wasn't as clean a break as I did. Mm. Gotcha. And so in the process of, um, you know, dealing with all, all the stuff that's going on, all the, you know, all the anger and resentment and, and things like that. Um, is that when psychedelics entered your life? Yeah. So that gets us to like in the bio we mentioned around 2017, I was off medications by that point, but I was so desperate for something because my symptoms were still there. I was still angry at everything. I was struggling with navigating the day to day in my life. And I was, I was desperate to find something to help me. And so I stumbled upon an article, I think about how psilocybin was being researched for depression and anxiety. And so I decided to try and find a local psychedelic group. Uh, we were living near Calgary at the time uh, to just talk to people, learn things. And so I found the Calgary psychedelic community. And there was a particular gentleman who was running discussion circles uh, the first Tuesday of every month out of his home, his condo. And so I started attending these and asking questions and vacuuming up and, and being a fact checker for a lot of the discussions and just really immersed myself in this. And one of the things that I've realized in hindsight is that I was so desperate for people to connect to that this became my new community. And I didn't, I didn't realize that until long after. So it, it became, in, it became about the people more so than the medicine. But what happened is by becoming an active part of that community and helping not only attending these events, but participating in the discussions and helping with um, logistics and things sometimes um, had the opportunity to attend some medicine retreats, group retreats. And so my first experience was in late 2017, early 2018 um, with 12 or 15 other people at a, at a retreat center that had been rented for us where we stayed for the weekend. And it was, yeah, it was one of the more powerful experiences of my life. Wow. Could you tell us a bit more about your first time? How, how was it powerful for you? I am not a visual medicine experiencer, so I don't get 
I don't get the fractals and the distortions and all that. I don't have a lot of mental images going on at all, let alone in, in medicine experiences. Um, I remember the emotional sensations about it. I remember the physical space that I was in. And I remember hearing all of the other people around me having their own experiences. The biggest, the biggest takeaway from that experience was this deep sense of oneness and connection. It felt like way, that this reality that we're in was a dream. And I woke up from that dream for a little while and sort of stretched and looked around and realized who I really was and remembered, oh, when I go back to sleep, I'm going to forget all this. So it became a very playful experience where I was saying, okay, I'm going to put clues all over the place so that when I see them, I'll actually remember who I am and I won't forget. So I'm going to arrange the stars in a particular pattern and I'm going to invent music and I'm going to embed things in music so that I won't forget and things like that. And it was a very fun and playful and joyous experience. But then I'm like, okay, I'm ready to go back to sleep now. And that's when I came back here. And that has always stuck with me. And there aren't a lot of images to that. There's a lot of sensations and a lot of, of feelings like I had an internal monologue going on, but that's been more than plenty. And that was, that's almost five years ago now. And well, four years ago, and it has stuck with me solidly. And I didn't handle myself particularly well when I came back from that experience, uh, telling one's spouse that I am the universe unprepared <laughs> is maybe not the gentlest way to have a conversation about what one's first experience was like um so it was a bit tricky to navigate coming back to the real world after that that was a heavy dose that was five grams i think of psilocybin that experience as my first introduction to that space that's, that's such a big dose for like your first time ever yeah right yeah wow um so that just reminds me of an experience that i've had when i was i forget what i was on probably ayahuasca or something, but like just me being the creator of my universe, that message was really clear. And it sounded mm -hmm. like it was very similar for you as well. Very, very similar. And not just the creator of my universe, but I was everything. And that all those people around me were just different manifestations of me. And that's, that's, I guess that's something that's maybe more pertinent to how I live my life now is the sense of recognition that I am just in this limited form, experiencing things the way that I am, because this is the only way I can experience things from this perspective. And that, that source or that energy that was manifesting all this really just wanted to experience as many different things from as many different perspectives as possible. And that actually leans heavily on some Mormon theology that has found its way woven into my interpretation of my experience, which has actually been kind of cool from the perspective of reclaiming part of my, part of my own personal experience in my religious upbringing lately, which I couldn't have done for years. But this idea of I am, I am, I am myself, I am you, I am all these other people has influenced the way I interact with people. So you're not some completely separate thing from me. The tree outside in my yard is not a separate thing from me. It's just me in a different form. And I think it's helped me be a lot more patient, a lot more forgiving, um, empathetic. Mm -hmm because I, why would I want to hurt myself? Yeah. Yeah. And you're saying that that's um, also a Mormon theology as well. The idea that people have a pre-existence before they come here and that we made an active choice to come to earth 
and that when we came here, our memory was wiped because if this world is a is essentially a test, test of our character, the only way to have an authentic testing experience is to not remember where we came from. Because if we remembered, it would throw the results off. And so it's a fun, it's a fun experiment to go between the spaces of I had such a powerful experience. The only way it could be that powerful is if it was objective reality. But also saying, well, there's a lot of things that I've experienced in my life that are clearly woven and threaded throughout my interpretation of that experience. So maybe not getting into the space of, well, my experience is right. Mm. And everybody else's experience, if they describe it differently, is wrong. Maybe my experience is just my experience. And it can be interpretation, interpreted in different ways, not literally. When I was raised in a space that had a very literal way to interpret the mechanics of before we were born, why we're here after we die, it takes a while to get out of that paradigm because I didn't even realize it was there. But to get into a space of saying my particular interpretation is mine and someone else's particular interpretation is theirs and one is not right or wrong, one is not true and one is not false, they're both equally valid. That that idea of non-duality started to come into my life. Mm -hmm. And the idea of absolute truth is maybe not quite the way I was raised to believe it was. And that started a really pronounced deconstruction process of, yes, I left the religion behind, but how much of what I had experienced in the religion was actually there under the surface in patterns and behaviors and ways of thinking that I didn't even realize were there. And that is a constant unpacking process still. Oh, that's a very Mormon way of thinking that. Why do I think that? For example? For example, um, a lot of conversations around gender and sexuality, I think, that in, in the Mormonism, in Mormonism's tenets, gender is a very essential part of someone's identity. And the body that you have is the gender that you are. And there are two, and that's it. And that is how God crafted things. Recognizing that even when I was out, really having discomfort around people who were trans mm -hmm. and realizing that that conditioning, that patterning of behavior as no, that's wrong. You can't do that. That's wrong. And catching myself going, wait, why, why? And not having a good answer other than, well, cause that's the way it is. And that's the really tricky part for me is those patterns come up, but they're so right in my face in the moment that I don't have a lot of perspective to see what's around the edges of them. They're just kind of happening. And so because they're all I see or all I'm experiencing, they feel like objective reality. The more that I do my own work, the more that I do my own practices, those things still happen. Those patterns still flare up. Those old stories still flare up, but I'm now seeing them in a wider context where, you know, if my kids come out to me and their lived experience is not matching the narrative that I was raised with. I can now sit with both those things at the same time and see, oh, that old story is playing out again, but that's not me. That's just a thing that was embedded in me without my consent. And I can let that go a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. I think that's so important. So key, what you just mentioned, it's like having that, um, having that self-awareness really to the level of when you are doing it in the moment to catch yourself and question is this my thought or is this something that's been programmed into me? Yes. And the, the ability to pause 
um, the gap between stimulus and response. This is something that Viktor Frankl talks, talked a lot about in his book or books that I get stimulated by something and I react to it and I respond. And there's, there's a space in the middle of non-reactivity of observation. And in the meditation practice, it's essentially sticking a wedge in that and trying to widen it. And so mindfulness or presence or being in the moment is being in that particular space. And so as I've done my own work, that space has widened. And so if I'm going to react or behave a certain way, I'm more frequently consciously choosing what I'm going to do rather than just unconsciously letting a patterned reaction dictate what I say or how I behave or what I think. So important. I I've definitely noticed that in myself as well as, um, as I get older <laughs> and, and being more experienced and, and doing a lot of work on myself as well, just catching myself in the moment. And it's hard. It's like in the moment when you're so agitated, you're in that fight or flight and you choose to fight. It, it is actually quite difficult to just like stop yourself in mid expression or like mm. before you release whatever that rage or that anger or that sadness and, you know, think for a bit. Um, how can people cultivate that more? it's going to be different for everybody. Um, exposure, I think, to as many different variations of mindfulness practices as possible. Um, there becomes a bit of a chicken and egg thing here. What worked for me was really primarily realizing, oh, I have trauma. And that trauma is taking up mental and emotional and physical energy. And all that energy that's being taken up to deal with and, and cope with that is the reason why I snap at people. It's the reason why I get frustrated when my kids don't do their chores. That recognition of, oh, I got to deal with this stuff that happened to me a long time ago. And that makes space for a different way of being was really important to me. So when I had tried mindfulness and meditation practices before, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Like my mind wouldn't shut up. I couldn't sit. It's because I was trying to add something new when there was already no space. Mm -hmm. So I needed to first start a process of clearing out the mess that was there before I could start add something new. So that's where the medicine work started. So my psilocybin experience, the one of the common analogies is shaking the snow globe. Yeah. So my personal experience was there was all these calcified patterns of behavior that this had been happening so automatically for so long that I didn't even recognize that they were patterns. I didn't notice what they were until I shook them up a bit and recognized, oh, they're still happening, but I'm seeing them from a different perspective. I see what they're doing. And that gave me a little bit of space to start doing therapy, which had started to directly address those individual traumatic memories and start to categorize them and put them in their proper place. And EMDR has been amazing for me mm -hmm. in order to do that trauma processing. So as those things are no longer affecting me the way that they were, now I have capacity. Now adapting a mental or a mindfulness and meditation practice has been a lot easier because I have capacity that I didn't have before. And so the continual processing of my stuff increases my capacity level and that capacity gives me the ability to entertain different ideas or different ways of thinking or adopt new practices um, or interact with people in a different way that I just couldn't do before because I was in survival mode, that fight or flight place. It's just, I just got to get through the day without losing my mind yeah. was because all this energy was taken up by all these other things. And whether you believe in energy or not, that's the best way that I can think to describe it is 
the, the, the mental toll of coping with unprocessed trauma was too much for me to do and be the things I wanted to do and be. I think that message is so key. It's like, um, basically you got to clear out the old in order to welcome the new. Mm -hmm. Right. So how do, how do we get people to, um, recognize that they have trauma and that it should be cleared out? That is one of the gifts of COVID actually. I think it's safe to say that everybody has trauma, but it's going to necessitate acceptance of trauma with a certain definition. So one of the best things that I can think to recommend to people is a book called The Body Keeps the Score. It's written by a gentleman named Bessel van der Kolk. And he was part of the team that actually got the PTSD diagnosis or diagnostic criteria added to the DSM-4. We're now at the DSM-5. He hasn't been successful in getting CPTSD admitted into the DSM yet. But he wrote this book a few years ago. And it's not just another book by another guy. He's actually the lead researcher in the current MAPS MDMA for PTSD clinical trials that are happening in the States right now. So trauma is kind of his bag. And so my, my interpretation of the way trauma is defined in that book has been, if you, if you have a memory that because of the specific experience that was going on when that memory was formed, it's kind of free floating. It doesn't have a date stamp or a timestamp. And so when we use the analogy of the soldier coming home from war, the reason why those flashbacks happen is because something conjures up a memory that the situation feels similar to the way it did back then, but it's not, Oh, that happened a long time ago because there's no date stamp. Their body is literally experiencing that thing again. Mm -hmm. So if they were in combat, they're in combat again. So what things like EMDR do is they help to add the context to that memory and it's able to be filed away and to say, Oh, Yes, that was awful, but it's a thing that happened a long time ago. And now that constant repeat of those flashbacks doesn't happen anymore. Mm-hmm. The problem with that extreme example, it's great for illustrative purposes of describing what PTSD is, but it belittles the reality of trauma in everyday life. So another analogy that I use with my clients a lot is if you're three years old and you're holding the biggest ice cream cone you've ever had, and that ice cream, for whatever reason, you trip and the ice cream falls off the cone on the ground that can create a traumatic memory, not because it's traumatic the same way combat is traumatic, but it's traumatic in the sense of it's maybe an unexpected thing. How did people around you act when that happened? Did that memory get embedded in your brain in a way that doesn't have a date stamp on it? So the extension of that one would be, I'm an adult, I go and get an ice cream cone. Unconsciously, I hold that cone a little tighter. I'm watching the way I walk. I'm anxious about the ice cream falling on the floor. Why? Because I feel the same way that I did when I was three, when I got that. And so EMDR starts to tackle all of these different things by finding these memories, giving them their proper context, and then they just don't bother me the same way that they did before. Wow. I'm learning so much. Thank you so much, Peter. (laughs) I, I need to qualify regularly. I am not a clinician. I am not a therapist. I am talking from my own experience. So, so that is the most important thing I think people can know what actually is trauma. And are we, when we talk to somebody about it, are we using the same framing or the same definition? That is a useful definition to me. Is it clinically accurate? I don't know. It works for me. So from that place, okay, well, what do I what do I do with that? Well, recognize that that isn't going to fix itself. The adage time heals all wounds is really dangerous. No, it doesn't. This stuff sits and it waits and it takes up energy and it leaks out. 
So when I'm snapping at my kids, when I am zoning out at work, dissociating, uh, addicted to social media, these are all coping mechanisms because all of the stress that these unprocessed traumatic memories are causing is leaking out into other areas of my life. And it had to get to that rock bottom point saying, I can't do this anymore, Mm -hmm. which led me to plant medicine, which led me to therapy, which led me to, which led me to. But the, the starting point, the recognition of what is actually happening to me right now yeah. and go from there. Wow. I have three questions for you. All right. So I think when we talk about trauma, a lot of people know it's like, oh, I got assaulted or I got abused or like, you know, went to war, like those really big ones. We do know that is trauma. But mm-hmm. when you were talking about it earlier, they're lower level traumas, the ones that we sustain on a daily basis you know, that builds up over time. How, how can we recognize that? Um, for me, the recognition came when the things that, let's say from the church experience, things that were very repeated patterns because of particular rituals or ceremonies in the church that we would do every week um, that were bothersome then, they continued to be bothersome after I no longer went. So embedded patterns of behavior are still occurring, even though I'm no longer in the circumstances in which they originally occurred. So one, again, an extreme example would be if that, if you were abused by a parent and that parent passes away, but you're still experiencing the same feelings and sensations about them when other circumstances come up, there's a part of us that does what it can to try and keep us safe emotionally and mentally. And those parts don't often know that the thing that caused those problems in the first place isn't happening anymore. They're too afraid to let their guard down for the risk of that thing might happen again. And I'm going to do my darndest to protect you from it. This gets into the world of what's called internal family systems or IFS, which is kind of like, it's another therapeutic modality, kind of like EMDR is a therapeutic modality, but IFS takes the idea of, of psyche by committee. And so if you have a traumatic experience or a series of traumatic experiences and your mind and your emotions try to protect themselves, that part's just going to keep doing what it thinks it needs to do forever until somebody tells it it's okay to stop and that it's safe to stop. And so that would be one of the best ways. You're no longer in that circumstance anymore, but the pattern is still going. It's self-sustaining at that point. So is it always, um, is it possible to recognize it in the moment or is it kind of always in hindsight that you're looking back to be like, oh, I'm still suffering from this, even though it's gone. It depends. I mean, ideally you're, you're recognizing it as it happens, Mm -hmm. but I'm not sure exactly how to replicate those circumstances for people. But if you, um, let's say you're in at work and a coworker or your boss, uh, is a little upset and, and raises their voice a little bit. And all of a sudden you're three years old again, Mm -hmm. and it's your dad yelling at you that, noticing, huh, that response I just experienced seems disproportionate to what actually happened. Mm. Those kind of things where my reaction doesn't seem to match the external circumstances, that would be a clue. That's interesting. Would you say, is it possible or is the goal to eradicate all your trauma? For me, I think I, I used to think so. I had been in that, that space of let go of what no longer serves. And I was interpreting that as get rid of, eradicate, purge. I've softened on that a little bit. I think that 
the things that I've experienced in my life, as I've processed them, I haven't forgotten them. I still remember them all. Mm-hmm. They're there, but they don't bother me the same way anymore. But the benefit or the joy in that realization is when I sit with someone who has had similar experiences to me, it, it makes it much, much easier to hold space for them, to empathize with where they are. And I don't think I could do that if they were eradicated like if I forgot them or I couldn't remember what it felt like to be in those spaces, but to be able to recall it in a way that isn't troubling or bothersome or disruptive to my life, Mm -hmm. that turns them almost into useful tools. Agreed. Is it possible to work on all of your trauma? I feel like I'm going to be doing this in layers for the rest of my life but things change in my life so fast lately that I I can't, I don't think it's reasonable for me to extrapolate that out. I think realistically it's safe to assume that no one's ever done processing their stuff. Um, And anybody who thinks they are, I'm like, okay, well, what is it that you need to process that's too scary that you'd rather pretend that you don't have anything to process? That's kind of how I approach that stuff. Some people might, I don't know. I don't think I'm going to. I think I learned recently that um, even though you learned a lesson, sometimes you're shown or given the same lesson again, but at a deeper context or deeper layer. Yeah, so that's been consistent. Yeah. Learning in cycles and, and layers. So that that's my latest lesson recently. Um, can you tell us a bit about EMDR? Like, how does it work? Like, what's the process, I guess? Sure. It stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And I don't think anybody really knows how it works. And that's kind of the fun thing is it works, but even my therapist doesn't know how it works or why it works. There's a bunch of different ways to do it, but the most commonly known way is that someone will hold uh, their finger up or a pen or a light bar. and They'll move it from left to right across that person's field of vision so that their eyes physically move back and forth. And as that process is ongoing, Um, the patient is asked to recall a troublesome memory Mm -hmm. and they'll talk through the details of that memory and then eventually sort of close it or put it to bed. And something about the way that the stimulus of the eye movement back and forth activates some part of the brain in a way that facilitates the storage or reprocessing of that memory into its proper context. So my, my therapist um, developed carpal tunnel. And so she wasn't able to hold a pan or move her hand back and forth. So she gave me buzzers. And so it's this little box that has an intensity and a speed switch on it and two little buzzers, one in each hand, and it buzzes alternately back and forth. And so it's like your whole body is doing this left, right, left, right movement through the sensations of these hand buzzers. Other people use a light bar. There's different variations of it, but the thing that they all have in common is this left, right, left, right, back and forth while you're having a conversation about the memory. And so in my particular uh, uh, experience, you'd pick a memory to start from, you'd close that, and then the therapist would ask, oh, what comes up next or what else? And there would be some, could be completely unrelated memory about something. And I had this a lot, things that I hadn't thought about in years, Mm -hmm. but I'm like, oh yeah, that's the thing that happened. And then we'd process that. And then we'd process that. And, you know, for an hour or however long your session is, and they're exhausting for me, they were really exhausting, but like, I just ran a marathon kind of exhausting. Look at what I did. Look at the work that I did. It felt like work more than typical talk therapy did for me. And yeah, then that thing just didn't bother me. 
wow. anymore. It's so wild. Like multiple sessions afterwards or like just, just even with one? One, because when I went, when I did multiple sessions and I was, I was in some really intense psychotherapy about a year and a half because I was just, I couldn't function anymore. Um, it was weekly for a couple of months and then it spread out since then. I go back every once, once every couple of months now. Wow. just for kind of maintenance and new stuff that comes up. Um, but yeah, but it was different stuff every time. Mm. I would never go back and do the same thing twice. Right. Wow. Um, how do you process it or how do you close it out? Are you literally just retelling your memory of it? Yeah. It, like a, a visual image would form. I think sure everybody's different, but for me, um, a visual image would form, which was always fun because I have trouble forming visual images. Same thing in, in my psychedelic experiences. I don't get visuals, um, but I would get very clear visuals and I would describe the experience and describe what I was seeing. And sometimes they would be specific memories. Sometimes they would be amalgams of memories of things that happened multiple times, but they would be squished together into one visual and just talk through them. And then the image that she would use is imagine a train going by and take a snapshot of that memory and now put it on the train and watch it go away, put it on the train again and watch it go away. And somehow that imagery in the way she did it for me, uh, that was where that reprocessing happened, where that contextualization happened. And so she would close out the session in, in different ways, but effectively something felt like it opened, like it was accessing memories or doing something in my brain in a way that was opening something that needed to be closed because times where we didn't close a session off entirely, I would just feel gross for the whole next day. Oh, wow. um, even when sessions were really good, when I first started, like I would, I would nap for three hours. Like I was so exhausted from the experience. And so it became very important to close those off so that I could be, you know, functional and cook yeah. dinner and things. I'm sure you were using a lot of energy. As so well. much. Yeah. All that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Wow. It sounds so powerful, yet so simple. It is. And that's... Can you do it on yourself? I don't know, actually. I, I work in a very solitary or have worked in my career in a very solitary environment where I've often had to work from home. And so for me, the one of the biggest values of it was that it was in-person therapy. Mm -hmm that it was interacting with another human being that I trusted, that I felt safe with, that allowed me to go deeper than I might have otherwise. And I'm sure that might be different for other people. I know that there are Zoom-based or online therapists that do MDR, but I don't know if people can do it on their own. Mm. Okay. Um, so you say you have four kids. Mm -hmm. <laughs> how, how old are they now? Oh, 18, 16, 14, and 12. Wow. And um, at what age would you let them do psychedelics or have they already been introduced to it? They haven't. My oldest is going to university for a psychology degree. And it, since I've gotten started in this, it's not something I've hidden. I've not really, I've not initiated conversations about it, but I think they kind of know, they've known what's been going on. Um, but the oldest is now a little bit more interested because she's aware of how much attention this is getting in the research front and the idea of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy as part of her practice has been intriguing. Um, but it's, you know, first year psychology program. So, you know, we're not really sure when the right time is to introduce that. And there is an argument about any kind of substance use that the brain doesn't finish fully, fully developing before somebody's 25. And so I don't really know quite yet if she has, she hasn't told me. <laughs> 
Um, but I think one of one of the desires that I've been fiddling with is what would it what would it feel like to have one of these experiences with my family one yeah, day? Definitely. That reminds me of like indigenous indigenous um, tribes in like say Mexico, South America. Um, I hear that they they actually do it in their family unit. Mm -hmm. their family. I've had I've heard stories of uh, people that are also ex Mormon that part of their processing of their experience was to do MDMA with their adult children. And that came up as a topic of conversation in an online community I'm part of is like, what is, is there a protocol for how to do that? How would you craft a scenario in which that could take place? And the, the logistics of it were not the issue. It was another recognition of how deep the anti-drug conditioning runs in people sometimes. So you have the general war on drug stuff that we all have in Western culture layered on top of a very much more intensified version of that for Mormonism, like drugs are really, really, really bad, not just bad. And so realizing how deep that conditioning runs and how much that gets in the way of having open and authentic conversations with one's even adult children uh, can be really frustrating because you'd love to be able to, I'd love to be able to have conversations like that, but it just, the, there's these blocks come up and I just can't do it. So that's part of my work is to understand more why I still react that way when the circumstances have so dramatically changed for me. What, what are the blocks specifically talking to your adult children about yeah, it? I just can't do it. Like it just won't come out. It's the weirdest thing. It's not fear. It's not shame. It's just like my voice stops. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. I wonder what that comes from. It comes from growing up in a space where you just don't talk about things. To be open and authentic and honest was to reveal parts about myself that weren't safe to reveal. And so this is kind of, is that idea, even though logically I know, well, they know what I've been up to for years. They're adults. Why is it still there? Because it took decades to build that conditioning up of constant, constant, constant messaging reinforcement. And it's embedded deep. And it takes a long time and a lot of peeling back of a lot of layers to get rid of it. What would you, yeah, how would you want your first experience with your kids on psychedelics to be like? Part of what I do in my practice is I help people craft what their kind of idealized experience would be for the first time, particularly for first time people experiencing it. And it's almost like I would want to go through that exercise with them. Yeah. Talking about, talking about things really openly, really honestly, really vulnerably about, you know, here's what, here's what I would need in order to feel really safe. What would you need? And there's a difference in that conversation. I think now that I have an adult child where it's now talking to a contemporary or a peer in that context as opposed to me, the parent being the authority figure and dictating how something is going to be. And that's new. That would be very new for me to have that kind of conversation. And we've done that for, you know, first apartment, what school are you going to go to those kind of conversations, but not this, but I would really like it to come from that place of, but it feels like it requires for me a certain amount of feeling safe to be vulnerable in a way that I maybe what is it doesn't risk doesn't feel like it risks what their image of me would be mm. 
because that would be a different interaction than we'd ever have before. And then here I am just a human. Yeah. How scary is that? <laughs> Pretty scary. But I, I think it's so cool that you are like open to it and your kids already know that that's the type of work or the line of work that you're in. I mean, my parents still have no idea what I do or mm. let alone the industry that I serve. So it's like, it's not, um, and it's not that I can't have a conversation with them about it. I just think it's going to bring on more drama than it's worth. Yeah, that sense of safety is really, really, really key to any of these conversations because you're getting to a vulnerable place where, you know, if you look at previous patterns, consciously or unconsciously, in instances where those things happened before, something that was potentially risky happened, was it safe for you then? Mm -hmm. And if not, that part's going to come up and try and protect you again. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm all for parents. Um for psychedelics <laughs> and hopefully that actually there did you um there is a website for parents for psychedelics i think i'm not sure what happened to it because it's not live anymore but are you in any groups that were like fathers or like parents in general talk about this type of stuff absolutely there's a group called plant parenthood plant parenthood oh, okay plant p-l-a-n-t-p-h.com and they're based out of let's well, it's, it's two uh work colleagues that started it one of them is based in new york and one of them is based in montreal and uh the podcast that i helped produce actually just did an episode with them episode 67 um where they talk about this and they run integration circles primarily that are thematically based around the issues that parents might have in their own psychedelic use how to talk to children what are the complexities in navigating the use of and integration of psychedelic experiences when you have kids potentially little kids at home um, and all kinds of different things that come up where children are part of the experience, whether directly or indirectly. Well, that's definitely, um, I see that as not a trend, but definitely like a future um, factor as our industry grows. Like these are important conversations that we need to be having. The imagery of, you know, the, the college kid going out to get high needs to be let go yes college kids go out and get high but i'm 43 years old and i'm involved in these substances because they are helpful tools in my own healing from the things that i experienced and why do i still feel shame around that what what is it about my own experience with you know 40 years of messaging from the war on drugs layered on top of a particular religious experience how do I unpack that in a way that I can have a conversation about this with anybody, let alone my family, the same way that I would discuss how I like to make a sandwich? I recognize, though, that I, I approach these conversations from an extraordinarily privileged position. I am an English-speaking, white, middle-aged male. Nothing's going to happen to me. Mm. But that's not always the case. The, the, those kinds of conversations for people that are in different life circumstances have potentially much harsher consequences than I would. To that end, it behooves me sometimes to sort of lean on that and say, because I have and enjoy such privilege, I have an obligation to speak about these things more publicly than some people might feel safe to do, mm -hmm. which is part of why I'm here. 100%. 100%. Could you tell us a bit about Waves? 
I started this coaching practice after months of hemming and hawing and feeling inadequate and having imposter syndrome around who am I to go and help anybody else when I clearly can't get my own act together. Um, but I'm the kind of person where if I just force myself to take a first step and say, oh, it's out there, I guess I got to do it now. I will be more likely to do something. So I agonized about who am I? I don't have a coaching certification. I don't have a degree. I don't have anything. I've been in IT for my entire career. Who am I to do this? Um, but what kept coming up and what kept coming up was that my, I was talking about my experiences online in online communities with people that had resonated in a way that they were actually asking me advice or asking me to help them. And it got to a point where I'm like, I might actually be able to do this. I might actually be able to offer something here. So I bought a domain name and I set up a website and I grabbed an Instagram and Facebook and sort of hung my shingle out there and said, I am not a therapist, but what I offer is a good conversation. So the, the spectrum that I kind of use to describe what my niche is, is you have kind of in descending order of education, certification, you have psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists, counselors, life coaches, and then me. Uh, I'm not in competition with any of those things. In fact, what I'm trying to do as much as possible is show how my work and the work that underground practitioners do in general is complementary to the emerging therapeutic model, where if somebody's going through the formal mental health care system that we have in the West, there is value in drawing from both worlds. And so in say AA, somebody who goes to Alcoholics Anonymous will get assigned a sponsor. So someone new comes in and they're struggling with realizing they have a problem. They'll get paired with somebody who has been in AA for a while, is in recovery, but understands what it's like to be there. And that's kind of the best analogy that I can use to describe what it is I do. I don't claim to be anything I'm not. I'm just a guy who's been processing his own stuff. But apparently the way I speak, the way I ask questions, the way I reflect to people seems to have value to them. And so where I've niched myself is really on the bookending of psychedelic experiences. How can I prepare for a psychedelic experience that I'm doing with deep intention? And then how can I integrate what I experienced in that into the rest of my life? In the middle sits those few hours in the medicine. And do I sit with people? Yes. But to me, those are almost a side effect of the experience for the people that I really want to work with, which is I'm trying to change the trajectory of my life. And I think this is a tool to help me do it. What that has led me to is a lot of work with people who come from the same life circumstances as me, typically ex-Mormon or ex-religious people whose identity and community collapsed after they left. And they are trying to figure out who they are. And they think this is a tool that might help them do it. Now, it's not the entirety of the clientele that I work with, but it is a large chunk of it. But the thematic idea of how do I integrate from an experience that might have fundamentally altered the way that I perceive my place in the world? What do I, how do I go back to work after realizing I'm the universe? Those kinds of things. And that is such wonderful, joyous, engaging work. I hear that. Um, two points that it reminds me of. One is, um, you know, when you're humming and hawing about it until you finally bought the domain and you put it out there, right? Um, for, I think for most people, to be honest, it's probably the same struggle. And it's that um, it's really a matter of 
is it more important to have or keep that fear of inadequacy or is it more important to go out there and help people? That is probably pretty close to where I made my decision mm -hmm. is, yeah, my fear was not as important as the drive to feel like I had something to give back, that I had something to contribute, particularly to a community that had given me so much. How could I not give back? I, I ran into this, um, it was a little sort of free web seminar on how to build an online course that I ran into. And this term stuck with me much more than any of the content in the course, which is this idea of a 10% edge. If I know 10% more than somebody, I am perfectly qualified to share that with them. Not from a position of, I am, I'm an authority figure somehow, and I will bestow upon you my knowledge, but no, I'm just a guy and I know some stuff. And if I know more than the person who's listening to me, then maybe they'll learn something. Mm -hmm. And so it's really helped me to teach the things that I communicate to people, the way that I frame conversations to really reinforce the idea that I don't know what I'm talking about. I only know what I've experienced. And if my experience somehow has some relation to what you're trying to do or what you have experienced, then maybe you can pick something up from that. But I'm very, very careful not to present myself as a guru or anything like that. Because I don't know what I'm doing half the time. I forgot to put socks on this morning. I don't know what's going on. But I have had enough experiences that have made me see, oh, maybe I do kind of know what I'm talking about a little bit. So I took a psychedelic psychotherapy course all through October of 2021. The biggest thread through all of that, this was a course directed at clinicians and practitioners and psychiatrists and psychologists. Like, what am I even doing there? I, I happened to get in because a friend of a friend they kept reiterating this idea that people who are trained in Western psychology, psychopharmacology, psychiatry have more to unlearn if they want to get involved in working in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy than they do have to learn. And so 80% of the course material that we went through, I'm like, I know this stuff. I know this stuff. I could speak to this intelligently. Holy cow. And that was really a huge boost for me, huge boost for me to say, oh, maybe I do know what I'm talking about enough to sit comfortably in my niche not present myself as something I'm not, but know that there is a certain portion of the population that's going to really resonate with me. I'm not here to convince anybody that I have the way. I'm not trying to convince anybody of what I do, but I want to find and connect with the people and attract the people to me that resonate with what I do and how I do it. And that's kind of how my client base is formed. Just casual conversations in online communities. Some people trip over my website. Most people don't, uh, but it happens very organically. And I don't put a lot of effort into marketing, um, mostly because I'm not very good at it and I don't like it, but people find their way to me. And that feels really good. And that feels more like a space I want to sit in lately. Mm -hmm. I think you hit it right on the head. Um, the second thing I was going to bring up was, you know, you don't have to be an expert. You don't have to be a guru or of any sorts. You just have to be a couple steps ahead of the person mm -hmm. that's helping. Yeah. And I, I think it's very encouraging like that out of all the things I've learned about my trajectory of my experience is, is that the fear that I had for so many years of it's not safe to be seen. It's not safe to be who you really are has pivoted dramatically. I mean, it's not all the way there. That's I continue to do this work, but it has pivoted dramatically to not only is it safe to be seen, but you have something to share with people. You have something to offer people to help them in their own journey of healing. 
And potentially you have an obligation because of all the things that I've experienced and the things that I am recovered from and in recovery from gives me a unique perspective on religious trauma, for example, that there may be, that may be the only way that somebody might have something click for how to get past what they're experiencing is because of my personal experience, that idea that I am my own medicine. I may be the medicine that someone needs at that particular point in their life. And to say, no, I'm too scared. I can't do that anymore. I totally, totally resonate with that. (laughs) Um, What is next for you in your journey? Ooh, so much. Um, I am not doing the coaching thing full-time yet. That is aspirational. I would love it to be a full-time income stream, but I do some fundraising and technology consulting on the side. And part of that work is starting to incorporate more things around plant medicine and the coaching. And that's been the fun part of, of the adventure is the merging of my experience as a consultant in nonprofits, my work in community building, particularly online communities, and my work as coaching. I had seen as three different ways to provide an income stream to help me provide for my family. But increasingly, those worlds are overlapping. The Venn diagram between them is turning into a circle in ways that I didn't expect. And so the the short answer is, I don't know. But Mm -hmm. it sure is fun to watch whatever is happening unfold. And something is unfolding that feels like it's bigger than I could have come up with. but I'm as excited as you to find out what it is. Well, well, we'll definitely be in touch. So I'll, I'll know. Yeah. <laughs> I'll yeah. Cool. So before we go into the lightning round, where can our listeners connect with you online? Uh, easiest way to connect with me would be Instagram. Uh, my account is not particularly active, but it's at waves peer coaching. My website is peercoaching.ca, And you can email me at peter at peercoaching.ca. Perfect. Um, lightning round. So this is how it works. I'm going to ask a series of questions and you can answer with the first thing that comes to your mind. All right. Um, what is your, um, I was like, I know the answer to this question already. So let me ask another one. Um, what is the next psychedelic medicine you want to try? I've never tried before. Mm-hmm. Five meal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, what's the biggest um, limiting belief that you discovered about yourself? Uh, That it's not safe for me to be myself. Do you have a morning routine? Yes, Uh, we have some old cats. So it's feed the cat with his medicine, have shower, make a little pot of coffee, wait for everybody to get ready for school and then go to work. Okay. Sometimes I work out. Um, what's your hidden talent? My hidden talent? Uh, I'm probably better at guitar than I tell myself I am. Mm. Music's always good too. Yeah. You know? I um I played the piano for 13 years and then I didn't play for like 15. And then uh, last summer I picked up the ukulele. So I've been learning that recently. Oh, fun. Yeah. Um, what do you do to downregulate? Um... I work out in the morning and that is really great for helping me get into my body at the beginning of the day. Um, But I have developed a semi-regular meditation practice where I have um, 
just off camera, I have a little meditation space set up where I was doing really like 30 to 45 minute guided meditations in the chair every day. But that has shifted and morphed into less of that and more of washing the dishes and folding laundry and making fruit salad and cooking supper. Those are my mindfulness practice now. Mm -hmm. So bringing that out of this isolated space and integrating it into my day-to-day -day life. That's interesting. So with the, with the daily things that you're doing, it's just being more present while you're doing it. Very much so. And being present in a way that's in my body in a way, we could talk about this for a whole hour separately, um, not growing up feeling safe to be in my own body and now learning how to do that. And so just enjoying the novelty of the sensations of soap bubbles on my hand when I'm washing the dishes, that kind of mindfulness. Gotcha. Wow. Uh, what's the latest lesson that you learned? Um, the latest lesson that I learned. I need to stop complaining to the universe that things aren't happening fast enough because the universe has a way of saying, oh, not fast enough. Okay, well, here you go then. And then things start happening so fast, I can't keep up. That's, a, that's my latest complaint to the universe too. <laughs> like, no, faster. No. Um, what's your favorite quote? Um, I have it written down. My favorite quote changes all the time. But this is a principle that I've learned recently with a strategic planning exercise that I've been going through. Good enough for now, safe enough to try. That hurdle of agonizing about hanging out the shingle and branding myself as a coach or putting myself out there in public, it's not perfect. What I do is not perfect. It's changing all the time, but it's good enough for now and it's safe enough to try. And that mentality has made it much, much easier for me to do little small drips and iterations of things um, instead of thinking I have to have it all perfect right out of the gate. 100%. That reminds me of, um, I was part of the startup world here for a second, for a hot second. And um, there's this phrase called, uh, fuck it, ship it. So when you're nice. doing code, it's just like, whatever, it just needs to get out the door. And so I've adopted that into my business too. Like not, um, like... I guess, staring away from being perfect or trying to be perfect. Yeah. The, the slick marketing angle that sometimes gets put on stuff that makes it appear perfect when it really isn't, particularly software, um, it's really gnarly under the hood. It is bubblegum and paper clips every time, I guarantee, and it's fine. It's fine. It'll be fine. That's why we patch things. It'll be fine. I like that bubblegum and paper clips. I haven't heard that before. <laughs> Could start using that now. Okay, last question here. Um, what would you like the world to know? Um, the insurmountable problems that appear to be inexorably tied to these gigantic systems and structures. COP26 is happening right now. The climate crisis is a topic of conversation. Feels impossible, insurmountable. How do we fix this? The answer to all of these kinds of questions for me is do your own work, yeah. go to therapy, do your practices, find ways to make more space because from that place, we can start to talk about these things in a way that right now people are just tapped out. The bandwidth is full. So how do I save the world? Do your own work. It's so trite and even saying it out loud is like that's nonsense it's it's come back to that a hundred different ways to me 
every big leap forward in my life has been a direct result of me having some breakthrough in therapy or, or developing a new practice or something that has this element of conscious closure of some piece that I needed to let go of. And in that space, I can do so much more and think so much bigger at a scope that's larger where I'm not in the space of, I just got to get through the day without yelling at my kids. Yeah. Wow. Conscious closure. I like that. A friend of mine came up with that one. That one's not mine. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Peter, for your time. It was so nice to reconnect with you and hear about your story. And um, again, I learned so much. So thank you so much for sharing with us and uh, being here. Your presence is such a blessing. And thank you for being an inspiration to all the aspiring liberated leaders out there. Thank you so much for having me. This has been fun. Yeah, cool. We'll see you next time. All right. This podcast is brought to you by Akita Agency. We transform overwhelmed healers into liberated leaders with our signature Akita Liberation Loop Method. We help psychedelic therapists and coaches evolve from a one-to-one to a one-to-many client model by co-creating evergreen funnels that lead to online courses and group coaching programs. We have a special gift for our listeners, a complimentary bite-sized training series to level up your evergreen funnel knowledge. If you're not familiar with or feel overwhelmed with marketing, sales, and funnels, then this training is for you. Just go to akitaagency.com slash tutorial. Thank you for listening to the Liberated Leader Podcast. If you found value in today's episode, then please, one, leave us a positive review, share it with a friend. Two, join our tribe on social. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Until next time, to your liberation and beyond.